0: Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sue Regan. Policy Forum Pod is a production of PolicyForum.net based at Crawford School of Public Policy, Asia and the Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And if you're keen to study with students from all over the world and learn with some of the leading policy experts in their fields, then you might want to check out our range of degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. To mark International Women's Day on the 8th of March, policyforum.net has launched a new in focus section to shine a light on the state of gender equality in Australia and around the world, and to discuss the various issues women are still facing, from trying to reach leadership roles to battling domestic violence. Now, this podcast today is part of this special In Focus section, and we want to get to the bottom of the hurdles that women are facing on their way into leadership roles. And the list is long. Whilst there have been some positive action to achieve gender equality, women are still underrepresented in leadership in business, politics, higher education and a range of other sectors. Across all sectors in Australia, full-time weekly average earnings are still 13.9% lower than for men. On top of that, a report by the World Bank last year found that on average, economies only give women three quarters of the rights of men in measured areas such as receiving a pension or freedom of movement. So today, we want to ask, how can policymakers ensure that women can overcome the hurdles they face on their way into leadership roles? We've invited four impressive female leaders from across the private and public sectors to come and talk to us about this important issue. First, I'd like to introduce Julie Hare. She is editor at Broad Agenda, which is part of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. Uh, and she was previously the Higher Education Editor at The Australian. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Nice to be here. Next, I'd like to introduce Professor Sharon Bell, uh, who is Dean of the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. Uh, and she's also a member of Women in Science Australia. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Sue. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce Sophia Hamlin-Wong. Uh, she is Chief Executive Officer of Mineral Carbonation International, and she's also a member of the ACT Climate Change Council and a sessional lecturer at the University of S- Sydney. Welcome, Sophia. Hello. And finally, uh, Caitlin Figueiredo. She's founder of CEO and CEO of Jazeera Australia. Uh, at 22, she was listed on the Forbes 30 Under 30 for founding the Girls' Takeover Programme, which was an international bipartisan programme that promotes democracy and supports increasing female political representation. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you all in the studio with us today. Um, as, as you've just heard in the introduction, uh, you all come from very different professions and sectors. Um, so I thought we could kick off really just getting a, a brief idea from all of you about what's what's your impression of the state of gender equality in your sector or field of work?
2: Well, I'll kick off. Um, I'm working in a university and universities have long traditions of being very proactive in terms of things like gender equality, but the situation's not great. If you're a researcher in a university in Australia, chances are you're you're a female, your chances of promotion and your, and your pay are going to be a lot lower from that for a man. I think uh, there's research from, the universe, from New Zealand that shows the amount is about $400,000 less for people of exactly the same quality. So even in the most progressive environments, women still struggle to get ahead. And I guess that's the conversation that we're having at the moment, what those structural barriers are to achieving great heights.
0: Sharon, is that your thoughts on the higher education sector?
3: In higher education, I think we've made great gains if we think about uh, a longer term, say, you know, a 50-year period. We've had extraordinary change in terms of women's participation in higher education. We now have a majority of undergraduate students who are women. We now have parity in terms of um, research high degree students, but we still see absolutely entrenched um, gender divides, uh, particularly in terms of senior roles within university roles at the level of uh, assistant professor, associate professor professor, uh, and of course in senior management roles. So that um, change is not actually moving through that if you like, there is no evidence of a pipeline of change in higher education. And we seem to often make significant gains in terms of, for instance, the number of women who are vice chancellors or chancellors in the sector. And then a few years later, we look at those, we review those statistics and see that we've actually gone backwards. So we're not moving forward in a systematic way.
0: Caitlin, how does the world look from your point of view?
4: Slightly bleak, I'm afraid. Um, so I do a lot of work in um, policy and humanitarian sectors around the Pacific. And unfortunately, in the Pacific, as you guys know, we have the lowest rates of gender equality in the world. I think last time it was at like 19.6%, but it might have gone up at the last election. But that's taking into consideration Australia and New Zealand. If you take these two countries out of it, it drops down to, I think, around 8%. And we have entrenched inequality from the time young women are just even starting to consider a career in politics. There is an unfair bias towards supporting men and encouraging them to enter those careers. But if a young woman or a girl says, hey, I want to be in politics, I want to be a leader, then She's considered too ambitious, and it's not really encouraged. But then, when you you actually go into politics, you know, women and people of diverse backgrounds face microaggressions, um, sexual harassment, incredible like bias, bullying, especially the further up they go, Um, and it just faces they face a lot of pressures to try and maintain the status quo and to try and balance, you know, being a political leader, being in the policy space, but at the same time, if they have kids – they're asking, why aren't they at home? If they don't have kids, why don't Why don't they have kids? So there's a lot of like conversations going around that we're trying to tackle. Sophia, what's your reflections?
5: So I work in climate change technology and more broadly, uh, my areas are research, commercialization, process engineering, geology and science. So I'm a, I'm a woman executive in STEM and we have just such a crazy underrepresentation of women in my areas. It's rare that I'm more than one of three women in rooms, and particularly in boardrooms in the areas that I face. So, um, my impression of gender equality is that there is obviously a, a long way to go. But just uh, connecting with what something that Sharon said. There are a lot of women studying engineering uh, and doing very well and going into post-grad engineering, but they're not making it up into the boardrooms. There's this really big disconnect between uh, women studying and doing very well at university and uh, making it through that into the upper echelons. So that's something that I've been focusing on a little bit more lately.
0: And indeed, the the annual census by Chief Executive Women last year found that in some areas, female appointments are going backwards, uh, and that some companies, as you say, still have very few or indeed no women on their leadership teams. Last year, uh, out of 25 new Chief Executives appointed to lead Australia's top 200 companies, only two were women. And the overall share That report said, you know, uh, women in top positions fell to 6% as compared to 7% the year before. Sophia, I'm going to go straight back to you. (laughs) Why do you think it is so difficult for women to get a foot in the door in the private sector and in these leadership positions?
5: Well, obviously, just to link back to what I said before, there is a pipeline problem uh, for women coming up through um, in companies where we are disproportionately... We face a lot of, a lot more, um, competing struggles with our home lives as well as, uh, being successful at work. It's really difficult to be what you can't see, uh, and with so few women in boardrooms, even for me, I, I was at ANU, um, 11 years ago and being ambitious from the beginning was seen as very, yeah, I was seen as bossy or, You have to tailor the way that you are um, in order to get ahead in business. I also think that in rooms when you are the only person who looks like you, it's really difficult to feel like you belong in those rooms. And so I think a lot of women face things like imposter syndrome, a crisis of confidence. uh, And I think that there's a lot of work being done in that area where we are trying to encourage more women to aspire and to reach those heights of leadership. But it's just not quite there yet. And in fact, now I'm being asked to um, go and speak at different events like um, international conferences, the World Economic Forum and different events where there aren't enough women representation. And I'd say that people are starting to listen to different voices, but there aren't enough, um, the pool isn't big enough. So, um, yeah, that, that's a, been a really big issue. I think there's also a really interesting dynamic
3: um, which was really well illustrated at a particular point in time and that was the point in time of the global financial crisis. Many would remember that there was a lot of discussion at the time about the failure of companies and if we had more women on boards, would patterns of... Operation and behaviour and strategies have been different and quite a significant push to recognise the importance of women on boards. What was really interesting and I think really telling and reinforces what Sophia is saying is that the response from the business world in particular was, well, we have a small pool of women who are known to us and trusted, I'd say, could be, they were people who are like us. And so the notion that was promulgated was, well, those women could sit on more boards. Mm. So instead of actually really achieving diversity and really expanding opportunity and the pool of people engaged in leadership and decision making, the notion became, oh, yes, we do have to have women but let's actually draw from the pool of people whom we know.
5: Did you see that a month ago uh, Goldman Sachs made an announcement that they would no longer float companies that didn't have diversity on their boards? Mm -hmm. They defined diversity as uh, having uh, gender diversity, but it could be expanded and they linked it back. uh, So they linked it back to performance and they said that um, there's no way that... Your company did a proper search for the best talent in the world to be on your board. If you don't have diversity on there, there uh, there is enough talent by our perception that th- that you would have diversity. And additionally, um, boards that have diversity on them are uh, performed. I think it's in the, in the forty percent better, forty percent better than other um, boards. So there is a movement in that area too.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say there is a very strong business case to have diversity on boards. I, th- I think the Workplace Gender Equality Agency has done a lot of work around this and, yeah, the, we're, um, those companies with um Women CEOs and women on, more women on their boards certainly do
0: better. And I, th- I think the number is quite significant. I, I think the 40% figure might be correct. I mean, just turning to political leaders now, and Julie, I might direct this at you. You know, following the recent election in Australia last year, Labour fell a little short of gender equality. And of course, the Liberal Party yeah, is still a long way off. And we know globally that uh, gender inequality uh, still has a very long way to go. I think there's only around 23% of all national parliamentarians overall are women. Why is it so hard for women to establish themselves as political leaders? And Julie, I wondered whether uh, you could reflect on your perspective as a, a journalist mm. in the past and what role the media is playing in, you know, in the discrimination of women in, in politics.
2: Um, I read a quote somewhere recently that said, men go into politics to be someone Women go into politics to do something. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of women choose not to go into the political fray because it's so horrible. Natasha Stott-Despoja was speaking at the University of Canberra on Tuesday night and she was talking about the ugliness of it and even though female representation is higher now, the Senate has 50% representation, I think 32% is the overall figure. You know, the idea that more women means that things will become... Politer and better behaved has just been proven wrong. It's interesting. I think it was interesting towards the end of the last parliament how that sort of posse of independent women banded together to try and get some change. But obviously, in the current parliament, that has gone nowhere. Um, I think Julia Gillard also just the absolute unmitigated sexism that she had to endure Mm. during her prime ministership and. It's interesting in that she, she speaks about not wanting gender to, be, to define her and somehow with women leaders and politicians, that doesn't help the situation. You know They want to be recognised on their merit, not as women, but they're still absolutely punished brutally. Because they're women, Um, are are you
0: hopeful? Given um, you know, there's been a there's more female political leaders in the world now. With Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, uh, Sanna Marin in Finland, does that give us cause for more hope? Well, it might be like universities. The numbers are small, and they
2: come and go. The The figures change quite dramatically. I mean, Finland's a really interesting case. It's a coalition of five women from different parties and the youngest – I think she's 32 – the youngest Mm -hmm. prime minister in the world – Jacinda Ardern certainly has a different approach to a lot of women. I mean, you know, the party political system in Australia just means that a lot of women politicians end up having to be like the male politicians. You know, it's a brutal, brutal game. One would hope that there is... Once again, it's the pipeline issue. We need young women with different attitudes coming in, but how to recruit them is the issue.
3: Um, Julie's statement that um, women go into politics to do something... I think is absolutely critical because many women, not just in politics but in many spheres of leadership, will take on those roles because their experience of the organisational context or social context is in fact very confronting very unsatisfactory, disturbing, and not reinforcing of their own position in their organisation or in society. So they start as leaders, if you like, with a fundamental desire to generate change. And yet that need to generate change becomes a basis of um, Patterns of behaviour and response which actually undermine their role. I think it's really interesting that Jacinta Ardern, for instance, who is being celebrated worldwide for the extraordinary leadership that she's shown, is actually facing a backlash currently in New Zealand and may not be successful in the forthcoming election. It's quite an interesting dynamic. So even when women are very successful leaders, There is, if you like, I think a tension and often a mismatch between the role that they play and the fundamental, the huge power base, which is there to maintain the status quo.
0: Let's take a break here and we'll be back shortly to discuss what Australia and indeed the world is missing out on by not having more women in leadership roles and how policymakers could tackle this very complex issue.
1: Australia's bushfire season was devastating and unprecedented. More than 20% of the country's forests burned, destroying buildings, taking lives and decimating animal populations and biodiversity. But this season's fires haven't just changed the physical landscape, but also the political one. They've sparked a national conversation on fire management, the impact on vulnerable communities and how the country needs to tackle climate change. Join the team from Policy Forum Pod at a very special live event where we look at what comes next. With a panel of experts, we'll examine the long-term impacts of the bushfires on Australia's economy, health and biodiversity and look forward at what the country could and should be doing in the wake of the crisis. Australia Ablaze, What Next? takes place at the Australian National University on Tuesday the 24th of March. Register for this free event at policyforum.net forward slash events.
0: Welcome back. Um, I'm still here with Sophia Hamblin Wong, Sharon Bell, Julie Hare, and Caitlin Figueiredo. Next week, we'll be recording our second ever episode of Ask Policy Forum, the podcast where you you get to ask the questions. Mark Kenny, former member of the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery and now host of our Democracy Sausage podcast series, will be hosting what is sure to be a pretty rowdy chat. So now is the time to get your questions in. Uh, What do you want to know from our panel? It can be serious or seriously funny. Uh, Our panellists are standing by to respond. To send us your questions and get access to the pod, jump onto Policy Forum Pod on Facebook and join the pod squad, or you can tweet us at hashtag Ask Policy Forum. Now, I'd like us to look more co- closely at how societies could solve some, some of the problems that we've been talking about According to a report by the World Bank Group, if women earned as much as men in their lifetimes, global wealth could achieve a gender dividend of 172 trillion. Sharon, you've been working on a project called Women in the Scientific Research Workforce. Can you tell us a bit about how the science workforce and maybe maybe even the economy more broadly could benefit from more women?
3: I think um, throughout my career, I've been very narrow in terms of the work that I do in research in one way, in that I've been asking one question in different contexts my whole career, which is, where are the women? And when I began asking that question about where are the women in higher education, in the academy, I was very interested in where women were, not just in terms of their distribution, in terms of discipline-specific distribution, but also, as we've already discussed, where they sit in terms of the status hierarchy in higher education, in the research workforce, and where they hold or do not hold senior positions. That drew me into the space of what is happening in science because what we see in science is some very interesting patterns. Firstly, we have overall as Sophia has also already observed, a dearth of women in a number of scientific disciplines, particularly, if you like, um, what are interestingly labelled the hard sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a concentration of women in what have been historically called the soft sciences. We've had women in the largest numbers, in the majority, in the biological sciences for decades. But despite that, we do not see patterns of women in senior leadership roles anything like proportionate to their participation at more junior levels or at um at the level of student participation so we were very interested in that dynamic in short, that dynamic revolves around a couple of things, and that is, um, firstly, the way in which women can engage and do engage with their careers. Um, Sophia has already mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, women will, um, often take career breaks, significant career breaks at critical times in their career, particularly in the postdoctoral point in time where biological time clocks are ticking, but also it's really important to recognise that careers in science are framed against male norms, male norms that assume that the scientist, the star researcher, is supported in terms of their personal and domestic life by the people around them, commonly known as wives. (laughs) So that was recognised, you know, by a group of women at the University of Sydney led by Bettina Cass in the 1970s. That has been recognised for a long time. And yet the norms of the way in which those roles are framed, the expectations of achievement that are expected to be regarded as successful have not changed at all.
4: I think i will just go back to your comment around your um, women take significant like, times off during like parenting. There was a study in 2018 that came out which found that only two percent of women actually leave the workforce because of like because of parenting decisions, and the most common reason why they leave is because of the um, culture within the workforce. So, for example, there's or being the only one. In the room, in America, in corporate America, there's one in five women are in are on boards, um, and what they found is being the only one in the room perpetrates this negative sort of culture, and it leads to unhappiness and lack of job fulfillment, and it's because of that culture that women tend to actually leave their own employment to go and find generally their competitors. And I thought that was really interesting to read that report of going, actually it's, there's a lot of like tendency to go, you know, women take a lot of time off to be with their kids or to be the primary caregivers, but it also has a lot to do with that bias, that inherent bias that they have. So even if women were to take, you know, a couple months off, That doesn't mean that they're always going to take that time off, but it's that whole bias of you have a kid, therefore you're going to be the primary caregiver, therefore we can't really count on you to have
5: more senior leadership roles. That's also connected to some research done um, that said that men who take time off to look after their children are seen as more responsible, Mm. whereas women are seen as uh, less committed to the job. Men are applauded
3: for taking time. to care for children or to respond to children's needs um, and women uh, for women that affirmation is simply not there mm, that's right but i think we also need to be really careful i mean certainly our research has shown that those cultural issues are really important but the underlying issues in science are not about culture they're secondary issues the underlying issues are about the forms of employment the majority of our young scientists in Australia are in fact employed in insecure employment. Mm. If you like, they're part of a gig economy. Um, they're employed on short-term contracts. They're employed in under conditions where, in fact, it's very difficult for them to take on and in- accommodate caring responsibilities or other responsibilities outside their workplace in a way which is balanced and which may be appropriate. So the nature of em- patterns of employment is really critical. And there was a significant study done by the academies just a couple of years ago, Alcoa, which indicated that job security or the lack of job security in the science workforce was the most critical issue, which generated the, um, the loss of people in the sciences.
0: Sophia, what about um, startups and how, do, how might we encourage more women to take up entrepreneurial roles?
5: I think that there's a bit of a frenzy around founders right now, about women founders and um, deifying leaders. So first of all, I'd like to say that I'm not the founder of my company. I am in the founding team. I'm not the CEO. I'm the COO. So sometimes I'm seen as more of a supporting role, which is not, I mean, that's absolutely the case because uh, companies aren't founded in vacuums. It's not just one person driving everything. And uh, I've had a few uh, occasions once um, by a, a large newspaper who started to interview me and then realized I wasn't the founder. And then they stopped the interview, which made me feel very small. I realized that we really want women to found companies, but actually it's teams of diversity that make companies great. And when, once we start looking at success as not just one person and, um, and measuring it by um, market force and um, being able to uh, expand it to include a lot more of the soft power um, measures of success, I think that we'll do a lot better.
2: Yeah, I I think one of the things with um, startups is um, a survey by the Fin Review found that 30% of startups have a female founder, which is higher than I expected. The thing is, you know, in order to be a founder, you need to get venture capital and the venture capital tend to be young men and the young men tend to, you know, put the money in the direction of people that they recognize, which are young men just like them. So they're, you know, like other things, there are cultural issues around, being a founder and on board. Startups, you would like to think they're young and hip and with it and, you know, just completely embrace gender equity because their mums were feminists. But the fact is, it's not the case. And that there's even lower levels of um, representation on the boards of startups than there are in probably even ASX listed companies. So, you know generational change, you can just cross your fingers, can't you?
0: Well We'll have to unfortunately finish this conversation soon. But before we do, um, I wanted to ask each of you for a piece of advice, uh, in particular for policymakers uh, and what they could be doing to improve women's access to leadership roles. Look, I, w- I wouldn't mind kicking off with that. There's um, some work being done with
2: um, Kim Rubenstein, Professor Kim Rubenstein, who works with the 50-50 by 2030 Foundation. She's started doing a lot of work on share care and looking at whether political representative jobs could actually be shared so that The one, it would make it possible for women, easier for women to take those roles so that their jobs aren't, you know, 24-7. It has happened. So in the UK, they did, there were two Greens candidates, Sarah Cope and Claire Phipps, who tried to to do that in 2015 and the court said they couldn't. However, Kim's understanding at the moment is there are actually no legal barriers to that happening in Australia and I think she's looking at sort of holding a forum on this to really open debate later this year. So uh, hopefully this will sort of um, get, get on the agenda as a point of discussion.
4: Um, actually, it's great that you brought up Kim because um, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks um, with our program called Girls Take Road Parliament. Um, we have bipartisan support from every major political party and this is something I've been thinking about for a while and Kim was sharing me with her ideas and we're like, you know, that would actually be a really good way to get more diversity into politics. It, it just makes sense, especially when you're looking at you know the leader of the Greens, Richard Di Natale, has just stepped down because of his caring roles and he wants to be a parent and he's being you know, applauded for that. And so this is something that Kim and I are planning on working on, which is going to be pretty exciting. But I think um, another thing which we were talking about earlier was the fact that we need to start increasing policy around getting more parental leave but also at the same time we have to – start um, giving opportunities for, like, more carers leave. When I was young, my grandparents were really sick and my dad had, gave six months twice, so about a year off, and he left the workforce to go take care of his parents, which were on the other side of the country. So we didn't have our dad around for almost a year uh, because he took on those responsibilities. And people kept on questioning why did he go? Why Why didn't his sister Go take care of the parents. and and even today he he's sort of criticized for it, but at the same time, they're like, Oh wow, you're a good son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's something like that which makes me think that there is that unfair bias again, but it's we need to start applauding men for doing that. We need to start encouraging and removing that gender masculine sort of performance-based qualities of, yes, they they are sons, they are parents too, you're not babysitting, you're looking (laughs) after your own kids. So we need to start championing that within the workforce.
5: You're absolutely right, Caitlin. I I think women, we still uh, face a disproportionate amount of uh, childcare, homework and elder care responsibilities. And as soon as we can start removing the stigma um, from men to start, um, one, accessing more parental leave and two, taking it, I think that will um, unlock quite a lot of leadership potential in our female leaders.
3: I think um, it's really important to note that good leadership and successful leadership is contextual. So in every sector, in every industry, you'll have a slightly different set of dynamics that need to be addressed. So it sounds like a really naive plea in a sense, but I would say it's so important for our policy to be evidence-based, to be evidence-based according to sector. I think the tragedy is that certainly in higher education, in science, we have had the evidence for three or more decades, and yet we still haven't been able to generate the policy response. And in that context, I think I'd add that I think we need to be far less timid. We need to be bold and we need to be disruptive by using affirmative action policies and quotas, not just targets. Sharon, I think that's a
0: a great point to end on. Uh, Thank you so much, Sophia, Sharon, Julie and Caitlin uh, for coming on the podcast today. Been Thank you. Listeners, please let us know what you thought of the discussion or even share your own ideas about how we could get more women into leadership roles. We're on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or send us an email podcast at policyforum.net. Or even better, join the Pod Squad on Facebook. You can find us there under Policy Forum Pod. In this group, you will be able to chat to other listeners, our presenters, and also gain exclusive access to our podcast series, Ask Policy Forum, which we created for you to ask us all the questions that you would like. Ask Policy Forum is out once a month, and we only share it with our group members, so get on board. And if you want to help shape a future with more women in leadership roles, then signing up for Crawford School's Masters of Public Policy could be the first step you might want to take. During your time at Crawford, you will learn from leading academics in their field and get the chance to specialise in your preferred area of public policy, from security to economics. For more information, visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And if you don't want to miss out on any future episode of Policy Forum Pod, you should definitely subscribe to us. You can find the podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your shows from. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Sue Regan, cheerio.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.